presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Katen Sheff, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. A patient presents with severe abdominal cramping and swollen hands. Food allergy is suspected. Upon further investigation, a diagnosis is made. The rare condition, hereditary angioedema. Joining us to discuss hereditary angioedema is Dr. William Lumrey, clinical professor of internal medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Lumrey. Thank you, Keaton. Glad to join you. Well, let's start with what is hereditary angioedema and how does it compare with other forms of angioedema? Well, angioedema is defined as an extravasation of plasma into deeper cutaneous tissues or in the mucosa. And it may occur, as you know, with or without urticaria. There are multiple etiologies, including allergic triggers such as foods and drugs, inhalants and even contactants, a variety of non-allergic triggers, uh, drugs such as the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents and angioconverting enzyme inhibitors. It can be physical causes, delayed pressure to carry a medical causes, autoimmune, malignancy, etc. And then the hereditary types, and there are three hereditary types of angioedema. Type 1 hereditary angioedema, which is the most common, approximately 85% of HAE patients have this type, is associated with C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency. Type 2, which accounts for the other 15% of the patients, have a quantitatively normal amount of C1 inhibitor, but is not functional, so essentially they're deficient. Both type 1 and type 2 are genetic defects, and they have an autosomal dominant transmission, but there's often an incomplete sort of clinical expression and somewhat variable severity. Type 3 hereditary angioedema was thought to be an estrogen-dependent disorder that was found only in females. It is not associated with C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency or dysfunction. In fact, these individuals have normal C1 inhibitor levels and function, but they do have a hereditary inheritance pattern for their angioedema. Well, how many individuals have this disorder? The prevalence varies depending on who you read, but it's somewhere between the range of 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 50,000 individuals. It represents about 2% of all the reported angioedema cases in the United States. Typically, these individuals don't begin having their attacks until the second decade of life, and, and usually it occurs with the onset of puberty, but we have seen it in infants and young children. What should we be asking and looking for when we perhaps see patients who have angioedema that may help make this diagnosis of hereditary angioedema? Well, Keaton, hereditary angioedema, unfortunately, is often misdiagnosed as an allergic reaction, as you alluded to in the case, to either a food or or drug or, or possibly an idiopathic form of angioedema. The abdominal attacks that these individuals have are often mistaken for bowel obstruction or inflammation often leading to unnecessary surgery. And women who have painful pelvic uh, swelling episodes are often misdiagnosed as having ovarian cysts or endometriosis. Now, patients who have hereditary angioedema have recurring bouts of swelling. The swelling is typically non-pitting. It's not erythematous. It's not pruritic. 
They can be peripheral, the hands and feet. They can be central in the face or genitalia, or mucosal, lips, tongue, larynx, and abdominal viscera. Depending on where the angioedema appears, obviously the symptoms may vary. Unlike some forms of acute angioedema, which occurs develops over a matter of minutes, the swelling with hereditary angioedema typically occurs over a 2 to 12-hour period, and, and then once the edema is there, typically lasts for 24 to as long as uh, 60 hours. Some of these patients will describe having a non-paritic, non-raised rash, which is known as erythema marginatum, that either precedes or occurs during the swelling attack, but they don't typically have urticaria, itchy urticarial lesions, when they're having an attack, and this may be a helpful differentiating point. The swelling that they have can be uncomfortable and, and even disabling if it occurs in the hands or feet and they can't use their hands or they can't walk around. The abdominal swelling can really involve any part of their GI tract including the esophagus, the small or the large bowels, and depending on where in the GI tract it occurs, the patient may have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and usually a common finding is severe cramping abdominal pain. And this is often why these individuals are mistaken for having a bowel obstruction or because they do have a functional bowel obstruction and are taken to surgery. Oftentimes they have nausea, diarrhea, and with this dehydration can occur and they become hemoconcentrated or even can have a leukocytosis. The most serious swelling is obviously that that might in involve the airway. So facial or upper airway, tongue, pharynx, hypopharynx, or even larynx swelling is potentially life-threatening. And these individuals often present with dysphagia, voice changes, a sensation of throat tightness, or even stridor. And in those individuals, if their airway is not protected or opened rapidly, the attack may truly be fatal. So that's what they look like. Now, Typically, a family history is present. Uh, someone else in the family has these unusual swelling attacks. We as physicians should ask for that hereditary pattern. Unfortunately, about 25% of these individuals are spontaneous mutations and don't have any family history of the disease. What's interesting is that even with sort of knowledge of this disease being available to the medical community, the diagnosis is often missed. There was a recent Internet survey that was reported at the American College of Allergy meeting in Seattle, and they reported that of 313 patients, on average, at least one year passed between their first attack and the seeking medical attention, and on average there was 8.3 years from the first attack until an accurate diagnosis was made. These patients had seen 4.4 physicians before the diagnosis was made, and 63% of the time the wrong diagnosis was given, and 21% of them had unnecessary surgery as a result of this. So it's a fairly clear clinical pattern, but it's one of those things that you have to think about in order to make an appropriate diagnosis. Let's come back to some of these symptoms. If a patient has urticaria, does that eliminate hereditary angioedema? Patients can have urticaria and have hereditary angioedema. Uh, 5% or so of the population that experiences urticaria, that percentage can be present in patients that have hereditary angioedema as well. But it typically an urticarial breakout is not associated or doesn't occur at the same time that an angioedema attack. And so if a patient presents with generalized urticaria and also happens to have a swelling of their lip or their tongue or their hand, more than likely they do not have uh, hereditary angioedema. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Caton Sheff. 
In joining me to discuss hereditary angioedema is Dr. William Lumrey, clinical professor of internal medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas. Well, do we understand what triggers the attacks or the swelling attacks in hereditary angioedema? The specific trigger for an acute swelling attack is often difficult to pinpoint. If you poll patients that have the disease, they often point to stress, either physical or psychological, trauma to a particular part of their body or fatigue that often precede an attack. The type of trauma that we're most concerned about is with dental procedures or procedures that might involve trauma to the throat or or larynx, such as during an intubation for surgery. These types of trauma can often trigger laryngeal attacks, and measures obviously to prevent or treat an attack should be taken before these procedures are undertaken. In women, menses use of estrogen-containing hormone replacements or contraceptives, and sometimes pregnancy have been reported to trigger attacks. Convert angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, the ACE inhibitors, also can trigger or prolong an attack by decreasing the metabolism of bradykinin, which is felt to be the main mediator causing the swelling. And these agents, the ACE inhibitors, are absolutely contraindicated in patients that have hereditary angioedema. Are there other ways in which this mechanism of the swelling in hereditary angioedema is different than other forms of angioedema? The swelling that's associated with, say, an allergic angioedema is thought to be related to release of histamine. Histamine is a vasoactive compound that causes blood vessels to swell and dead blood vessels to leak. The angioedema associated with C1 inhibitor deficiency is probably related to the production of bradykinin in excess. C1 inhibitor is an important regulatory protein in the coagulation, complement, and contact systems. And in the contact system, C1 inhibitor regulates the production of bradykinin, and without it, you don't regulate bradykinin, and uncontrolled production of that leads to fluid loss from vessels and the edema and the pain and the resulting angioedema. So this is not a histamine-driven angioedema. It's more likely driven by the presence of bradykinin in excess. Well, what lab tests are helpful for making the diagnosis? Well, as we discussed earlier, type 1, type 2, and acquired C1 inhibitor inhibitor, the problem is there's a lack of functional C1 inhibitor in order to regulate a variety of things. In the classic complement pathway, C1 regulates the activation of the classic complement pathway, and with it being unregulated, then complement components C2 and C4 are activated and consumed on an ongoing basis. So in this disease, both C2 and C4 levels are down. In most patients that have C1 inhibitor deficiency or dysfunction, even when they're not having an attack, their C4 level is low. So that is an easy test to do. It's very well done by most laboratories, and it's a quick test to do. So a quick screening test would be to obtain a C4 level, and if it's normal, it essentially rules out this particular diagnosis. The Academy has suggested that to make the diagnosis that one obtain a C4 level, a C1 inhibitor level, and a C1Q level. Uh, C1Q is is low in individuals that have the acquired form of C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency, not the hereditary form. If C1 inhibitor level is normal, but the C4 level is low, then they may have the type 2 type of 
hereditary angioedema, and a C1 esterase inhibitor functional assay should be done to prove that. So a C4 level to screen can further the diagnosis with a C1 inhibitor quantitative assay, and if that's normal, uh, then to obtain a C1 inhibitor functional assay. And these laboratory tests are available in reference labs. Obviously, the C4 level is available through most hospital laboratories. Address the C4 just a little bit more. Is it going to be zero, or is it just going to be low normal? Because I know you said that if it's normal, it eliminates this. It's not low normal. In most of these individuals, and certainly during the setting or in the setting of an acute attack, the C4 level is half of what the lower limit of normal is for the laboratory. So a level of 2 or 4 or 7, if the normal level is over 12, is not unusual. So people are going to know if they get a C4 that it's low and, and they need to pursue this. Yes. So once you make the diagnosis, what types of therapy are available to prevent or perhaps treat the swelling attacks? Unfortunately, in the U.S., there's currently no approved therapy for an acute hereditary angioedema attack. Are there some that we hope to get soon? Well, as we discussed, the swelling is the result of a deficiency of functional C1 inhibitor, and agents that are likely to increase the amount of functional C1 inhibitor are effective in preventing attacks. Concentrated C1 inhibitor has been available in Europe for treatment of acute swelling attacks for the past 30 years. C1 inhibitor has recently been improved by the FDA for prophylactic treatment in the United States, but as I mentioned, it's still waiting approval for treatment of acute attacks. So having the prophylaxis indication is an important change, at least for those individuals that are most severely affected. They can receive safe and effective treatment with really out worry of side effects often seen with the androgens. Things are about to change in the United States. There are currently five pharmaceutical companies that are testing and, and preparing products for therapy for hereditary angioedema. There's a lot on the horizon, and all of these products have theoretical advantages and problems. Hopefully, over the next year to three years, we'll have several choices for treatment of these patients. Great. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, Dr. William Lumrey. Dr. Lumrey, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thank you, Keith. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.